Ron Svoboda was a major league baseball player known for getting clutch hits, being a great teammate, and establishing a special bond with the fan base that followed him. An excellent hitter who helped lead an improbable group to a story championship. He made a play on the biggest stage in the biggest baseball city in the world, which became not only legendary and did as much to win that title as any play in that series, but became something that he is known for almost 50 years later. Affable, beloved, personable, and caring. He then went on to become a much respected sportscaster in three major markets. Ron Swoboda is a New York and sports legend. Welcome, Mr. Swoboda. Well, I don't know how I can follow that, Lynn. Um, I, I haven't had that much smoke blown up, you know where? In a long... <laughs> well, but, um, you know what? It just happens to be true. Your words. Well, okay. Your journey starts in Sparrows Point, Maryland, um, where you grew up. Tell us a little bit about what it was like to grow up in Sparrows Point, and tell us a little bit about how you yourself got involved in playing baseball. Well, Sparrows Point, uh, for people that don't know, it is in Baltimore County, Maryland. Um, it was, when I was growing up, uh, the site of, uh, of a large uh, integrated steel mill operation. Uh, Bethlehem Steel is what it was most famous for over the years. And uh, when I was a kid growing up, they employed 35,000 people uh, making all manner of steel products um, around the clock. And, and, and my dad didn't work there. My dad was in the automobile business as a mechanic, then a service salesman, service manager. And, and before he was finished, he taught auto mechanics at a, uh, at a high school, at a Votech high school. So I think I grew up in a very idyllic place uh, with teachers who, who made us feel like we could do whatever we were capable of doing. We were never limited. Uh, it was largely middle, uh, lower middle uh, class. And uh, uh, I, you know, it was a beautiful place to grow up where, where, you, where you felt like uh, uh, you could be anything you wanted to be if you put the work in. So one of the things that was kind of fun about you and your family was some of the unique characters you had in your life growing up. Um, one was your Chinese granddad. Tell us a little bit about him. Yeah, we called him Uncle Arthur, but he really, and granddad later on, um, he was my mother's mother's, you know, I don't know how to do the math. She had a couple of men in her life. Um, and and, and uh, she was an amazing woman, uh, my mother's mother. Um, she never, uh, she never let us grandkids get too far away, and she never judged us. Um, uh, we got a lot of acceptance and support from her. Never missed a birthday. Never missed a Christmas with presents and and things that kept us close. She kept the family together. But she worked as a waitress in a Chinese restaurant in Baltimore City, and married a guy who worked in the kitchen, and his name was. Uh, Depending on whether you use his Chinese name, which was Ang Kin Ben, or Arthur Wong, really was what he went by. He, how he got into this country, I can't attest to whether it was legal or not. But I know that he served in the military, in the army, and, uh, and he was a heck of a man. And, and he was special to us. I learned to eat with chopsticks and appreciate Cantonese Chinese food. Uh, when I was about nine or 10 years old, when he came into our family and, you know, not everybody thought it was the greatest idea in the world, but he proved to be a quality person. So also you had a couple of uncles who worked in the funeral business who also made a well, great impression. Uh, I had two uncles who came in. They, it wasn't the funeral business. It was they worked in the medical examiner's office oh. in Baltimore City, it was the morgue. Okay, you know, that's the morgue. They came in working on, you know, they they were guys that, 
you know, didn't didn't take their education very far and um, uh, ended up with jobs uh, working on the wagon that, you know, they started out on the wagon that went out to pick up stiffs, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, people that people that were were killed or died and 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 um, needed to be taken to the morgue in Baltimore City. So it was every manner of of of, uh, of, of accident and and uh, and natural death um, uh, that they they had to deal with um, unattended by a physician, I reckon. But um, they were characters, uh, authentic in every way, and and. Uh, my brother and I used to, uh, when when we were young, we'd go up there on a Saturday morning if one of my uncles was working, and and we called it viewing the stiffs. You know, it was kind of a morbid curiosity, but you could go in there and watch them do um, autopsies. And um, and and one of my uncles actually, without any education, uh, really acquired a, a seat of the pants. Uh, 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 education as a forensic uh, a pathologist, really, and and could do autopsies um, um, and and did them, advising the, the the doctor who was in charge of the place. So he was a smart guy with no education. But you would go up there, and there was some you know gallows humor. Uh, I remember walking in one time, and there was a guy laying on a slab with a cigarette, you know, in his mouth. <laughs> still lit you know and, and I you look at him and you go what and, and and your uncle goes you see I told you smoking's no good for you <laughs> or, or uh, you know they sometimes acquired uh, articles of clothing that were no longer uh, useful to uh, their previous owner if you get my drift and I wore uh, I wore a, a, a corduroy car coat um a couple of winners that uh, was acquired in that way and my uncle had a great story one time he you know guy came in there was killed in an automobile accident and he had a nice looking pair of shoes on there were boots they were short boots and you know and and, and they fit my uncle and this guy didn't need them anymore and, and 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 he walked out of there with him and of course my uncles every day after work they went went to a local bar, you know, and he was telling this guy standing next to him about, uh, uh, you know, what happened to this guy that they had uh, dealt with uh, on that day. And the guy said, the guy said to him, boy, I wouldn't want to be in his shoes. And of course, you know, there's, <laughs> there's the punchline. My uncle looks down and goes, that ain't so bad. <laughs> morbid, morbid, but fun and happened. <laughs> Well, one of the things you've always said about yourself, one word in capitalizes Ron, Ron Swoboda, is that you were lucky. And your family showed that you were lucky in having such a great, great support system around you. Um, it helped you as a young man. It helped you basically growing up in the Baltimore area. And also it's something you reflect on all the time as far as, you know, having such a great, great, great childhood and youthhood. I think um, if you're fortunate enough to grow in a strong family situation where from the very beginning, uh, you're responsible for yourself. When you do stupid things and you screw up, you own them. And, and, and uh, there was no shirking. Um, and you know, you always wish you were better at things or you always wish you had worked harder or smarter or both. Uh, but but my upbringing was you were responsible for yourself and you were responsible to your family. And and that was one of the beautiful things when I was lucky enough to make the major leagues and play for a few years. And of course, the World Series in 69 was against the Baltimore Orioles, my hometown team. So my relatives were drawn into that in a way that made them, you know, really proud and happy and I felt like I gave them something and all I was trying to be was the best major league player I could be and and have the longest career I could have uh, but it was a gift to them in a lot of ways and I you know over the years I really felt like uh, you know all I, all I was doing was scuffling to try to 
stay as a ball player, but you were giving them something pretty special, something that made them proud and something they loved to tell their friends about when you got together and whatnot. Now, tell us about the beginning of your baseball career, how you got started and how, when did you think that you had enough talent to really, really take it to other levels, say, rather than high school? Well, I, I was playing for, I, I was fortunate enough to try out for a couple of teams in Baltimore City where they played a better brand of baseball. Um, and I, you know, I made these, uh, I made the, it, the age group was 14, 16 was the first one I made. And then um, I played for a guy named Sheriff Falbel and we played, you know, a lot of, we played five or six games a week. And then uh, later on, I played for Leone's Boys Club, um, which was sponsored. Leone's was a, I think it was an automobile dealership, but it was Brothers, and they sponsored this team. And, and, and I played for Walter Youse, who was a bird dog scout for the Baltimore Orioles. And uh, we played 90-some baseball games in the summer. And, and uh, we went to a tournament in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, the AAABA tournament there. And, and uh, um, I had a really good tournament and I thought I could play a little bit. I, I was planning to go back to the University of Maryland where I was a, a, a physical education major. That was my plan to go back, but it, it turns out that the Mets stepped in at that point. And um, the Baltimore Orioles had just signed a guy named Wally Bunker and gave him a lot of money. And they weren't offering anything. They never made an offer to me. And uh, the Mets came in and said, we're gonna make this offer. And, and the bird dog scout for them was the guy I played for, Sheriff Falbo on the 14-16 uh, on, on team. They came in there with a piece of paper with a number on it. And, you know, I looked at the paper and they said this, you know, of course, this may have been negotiation on their part, but they said, this offer may not be here tomorrow. So they put a little pressure on me. And um, I looked at it and it was $35,000 back when my mom and dad made about 12,500 together between them. And, and, and I've always said, you know, uh, if you wanted to get hurt, you wanted to stand between me and that piece of paper they want me to sign yeah. that contract because you would have gotten run over. And, and um, to me, it was no decision at all. I, I, I thought, you know what? They made the point that with the New York Mets, you might get to the big leagues quicker. It was an expansion team back then. And um, their logic was correct. Um, and I signed with the New York Mets and, and uh, went back to the University of Maryland, finished up my fall semester and then went off to play professional baseball, something, you know, I had always wanted. And for a long, long time as a young kid, didn't think I'd ever measure up to that. Didn't think it could happen, but I grew as, um, a, a, you know, physically and, um, and, and as, um, as a player and, and the opportunity was, was presented to me in a way that I couldn't possibly turn it down. Now, one of the things that was different, I mean, you were still very young at this point like 18, 19 years old. It was 19, yeah. And I mean, so all of a sudden, you know, you're thrust into Major League Baseball. But one of the things that young men back in those days dealt with was the ongoing kind of specter of armed services. And that was yeah. something that Ron Swoboda kind of had to deal with and, and kind of had to, we won't say circumvent, but you had to find a way that you could continue to play baseball. Well, um, you know, it, it hit me from a lot of circumstances. I'm playing in New York. A, a real good friend of mine was um, a liberal New York poet uh, named uh, Joel Oppenheimer. And we had had many discussions. I met him early on in my experience in New York. And, and uh, I knew a lot of, uh, of folks in New York who felt like the Vietnam War was not only illegal, um, and, and conducted under false circumstances or started under false circumstances, the Gulf of Tonkin and um, the, the uh, uh, domino theory that was proven, uh, you, you know, um, 
uh, uh, false. Um, all kinds of things about that war in the very beginning, um, I distrusted. So I was looking for a way. I couldn't get into a reserve unit. My wife now of uh, over 55, um, 56 years, Cecilia, her and I were going together and planning to get married at the end of my rookie year. Um, back then it was a deferment to be married. Um, in the very beginning, and we decided, and my mother okayed it, we would get married but not live as a married couple. And so we went to the Justice of the Peace in Chestertown, Maryland, and uh, I bought some little plastic ring that looked like a, you know, wedding ring, and it cost about a uh, $1.50, and she put that on her finger, and we were officially married, but we did not live as a couple and, and um, as per my mother's um, advice, um, no, it wasn't advice. It was, um, it, 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 it was a rule. You will not consummate this relationship, you know? <laughs> I but, can't say it worked all the way through, but, but the point was that was a deferment. And right after we got married, I got my draft notice. So I could walk in there with the marriage license and I was off the hook there. And then, um, Later on, uh, they rescinded that deferment, and um, you had to have uh, you had to have a child. And and right around the exact same time as I got my um, uh, draft notice, um, uh, my wife got pregnant. You know, the rabbit died, and and um, so at that point, um, I was um, I, I was uh, free of the draft and could pursue my baseball career, which. I really wanted to in the first place. So, so, so you go to your first training camp, 1964. Uh, you're up there with the major leaguers. Um, what did it feel like? What, what was it like for Ron Swoboda there to all of a sudden, number one, be exposed to a baseball icon like Casey Stengel, and number two, to be there training with major league players? Well, they they throw you in the deep end of the pool. Now the organization back then had this idea. They invited all their young players, first year guys and others, uh, young prospects uh, to an early camp that preceded uh, the major league spring training. But it was at uh, Huggins Stengel Field in St. Petersburg. Imagine that. You, the first professional diamond you walk onto is named for the manager of the team at that time you know at least half of the name huggins uh miller huggins was another yankee manager but uh casey stengel was the other half of it here's a guy you talk about a legend this guy was a walking living legend and um incredible to be around but you know i was just trying to keep my nose out of the water and 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 you you know you're you're working as hard as you can just just trying not to you know, uh, be overwhelmed by, by, by this exposure to Major League Baseball. And I say Major League Baseball because they kept a couple of us around and I was amongst them. And I actually went to big league spring training and got a few at-bats um, after, um, after that early camp. And so, so my career started in a rush and uh, it came at me fast and furious. Now, one of the things about Casey, Casey developed a strong affection for you, Ron. You were one of his favorites. He liked you from the get-go. One of the things, though, he could never pronounce your name the right way, correct? Well, my name wasn't one of the only names that Casey mispronounced. <laughs> yeah. He did have a habit of it, um, uh, you know, like um, I, I remember, you know, if you read some stories about him, um, he uh, he pronounced the fighter's name. He 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 called Chris Canazero, who was um, who was uh, one of our, one of our catchers. He called him uh, uh, Canzanari, who was a fighter at the time. He, but he called him Canzanari. Um, Joe Pignatano, uh, who was one of our coaches on the '69 Mets and a great uh, friend of Gil Hodges. Um, always told the story about the time that uh, 
the bullpen coach with the Mets way back when had to go off and did some scouting. And uh, Pignatano was assigned to the bullpen as a backup catcher uh, 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 for, for the Mets. And he's down in the bullpen and, and uh, he's the bullpen coach, right? And Casey said, if that phone rings, you pick it up. Well, the phone rings about the sixth or seventh inning. Uh, Pignatano picks it up and, uh, and, and Casey goes, get Nelson up. And Piggy goes, Nelson? Because there's nobody named Nelson in their bullpen. But uh, he says, Nelson? And Casey says, yeah, get Nelson up. So Piggy hangs up the phone, goes and gets a brand new baseball, you know, rubs it up. And he sits it down on the mound. And he says, Nelson, get up. <laughs> a guy, and a guy named Bob Miller walks up there and picks up the ball. And Casey, <laughs> you know, you know, uh, Pignatano goes, uh, when did you change your name? And, and, and Miller said, I didn't, Casey did, you know, <laughs> so, he, so you know, he knew who you were and he had a great memory, but he would, he would, he would flip names around a little bit. And he called me Sabota. There never was a W in it. Never was. So, but, and but I he, didn't care as long as he put Swoboda in the lineup. Lineup, uh, exactly. And he put my name in the lineup. Um, in that in that rookie year of 1965 and I got to play and I you know it, it remains true today that um, I hit more home runs for Casey Stengel in half a season than I ever hit in any full season um, I had 15 home runs for him in in the first half of 1965 and thought you know this game isn't that hard and then it got harder when they started throwing more sliders and things <laughs> But you you learned, as you said, baptism by fire. I mean, two of two of the guys you faced, you know, in your career early on in that career was Sandy Koufax and Bob Gibson. What was it like to face those guys as a twenty-year-old? Well, I had a lot more success against Sandy Koufax, and um, as a matter of fact, I in my rookie year, I hit a home run off of Sandy Koufax, and it is one of those moments uh, out in California in Chavez Ravine. And um, I never hit any home runs off of Bob Gibson. I got a couple of base hits off him, and I was lucky to do that. Gibson, uh, Gibson, when the question is ever asked, who was the toughest? Bob Gibson was the toughest for me. I just had a hard time with him from the get-go, and, and he had great stuff and was a great competitor, ferocious competitor. Um, Koufax was a left-hander, and, and, you know, I was a pretty good fastball hitter, and I I got some pretty decent swings at him um, when I was a younger player. So I got a few knocks off of, off of Koufax. And, you know, um, I remember one time Koufax was a pretty good basketball player out of Brooklyn. And, um, and, and uh, 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 I think he played some in college and he always followed the NCAA tournament. And I was in New Orleans in the Superdome it was when um, I think it was Syracuse and somebody else were playing in the final many years ago, but I was sitting up there in, 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 in some decent seats, but I saw Koufax down there at courtside and I went down to say hi to him because he remembered you and he remembered everybody that took him, you know, downtown. And, on my way back to my seats, I had a nice little conversation with Sandy, who is one of my favorite people, just a gentleman, always has been a decent man. And, and um, I was coming back to my seats and I walked by two players. Back then I was doing color for the AAA team in New Orleans. And there were a couple of guys from the AAA team who were also there in town at the, um, at the NCAA basketball finals. And they, and they, and they said, they saw me down there, and as I walked by them, they went, you know, Ke you know Koufax? I said, do I know Koufax? I said, let me ask you something. How many people are here in this here Superdome? And they said, I don't know, maybe 70,000. I said, you know how lucky it makes you guys? And they looked at me and said, lucky? Why? I said, 70,000 people in this Superdome, and the only son of a gun that ever hit a long ball off of Sandy Koufax is standing right in front of you. And I just did it. I just did it to see the look on their faces, and I got the look I was after. 
One of the things also in your rookie year that said that that kind of blew you away was walking into the Astrodome for the first time. What was it about that stadium? Oh, the Astrodome was, you know, it was this experiment, you know, that that was um, um, an interesting, but I thought poorly executed idea for, for a lot of reasons. But uh, um, first off, you know, you build a, a, a plexiglass dome and it's not clear plexiglass. It has a lot of steel structure and little plexiglass panels. And, and when they first tried to play baseball there um, and you looked up in the daytime between the, between the structure and the, and the glass and the structure in the glass, your eyes could not resolve anything like a baseball up there. And they found out you couldn't play baseball after all the work they had done. The one thing they forgot to think about was what happens in the daytime if you look up. And, and uh, they figured it out finally that you had to opaque the whole thing over. And then the surface, um, they tried, you know, they, the reason for plexiglass was they, they were trying to grow grass in the, in the, in the dome. And it would have worked fine, except when you uh, opaque the paneling on, on the roof over, the grass started dying. So the first year uh, in 65, um, it was this grass dying. <laughs> um, yeah. And the second year they came up with this, um, you know, this early form of AstroTurf. It was really indoor outdoor carpeting with very little padding and your feet with your ordinary steel spikes. It didn't support your feet. You stood on your spikes. So your arch was overstretched and, you know, a three day series in the Astrodome, your feet, you felt like you were crippled. Um, I, I couldn't imagine um, uh, guys that had to play there all the time on that turf. And, and so um, it didn't work for a whole lot of reasons. It was not a comfortable place to play. Uh, for all the money they spent and all the thought that went into it, um, it didn't seem like they, um, it didn't seem like they thought about the game of baseball as much as they thought about the commerce of building an indoor stadium, kind of like today. Um, uh, it seems like uh, they're way more interested, you know, out of the commissioner's office in, um, in the money of baseball, as opposed to the beauty and um, innate balance and structure and history uh, and nuance of, of the game of baseball as they inherited it. Now you get to Shea Stadium. Okay, as a rookie, 1965, and you're gonna play the outfield. You walk out on that stadium and a couple of things struck you. A couple of things made it really, really interesting for you to try to assimilate into a defensive player in the outfield with that ballpark. What was that like? I mean, you're talking about um, uh, Shea Stadium? Yes, Shea Stadium. Yeah, Shea Stadium, you know, you have to remember, um, Shea was built three tiers high. It was one of the tallest of all the major league stadium. It was like a, a globe theater. You know, it stood all those tiers tall. And so fly balls off the bat uh, very often, most of the time, didn't come out of the stand. And, the, you know, the, the people were always moving around and the background was always changing. And, and depending on the light conditions and weather conditions, it was um, it was a fairly mercuric background. And it was hard there to uh, track the ball when you first came into Shea Stadium. It happened all the time that outfielders, pretty good outfielders, um, were hurt uh, uh, trying to cover. Um, cover the outfield in because you didn't pick up the ball as quickly um, uh, as you would like. And I had some problems out there picking up the ball. And besides, when I was in left field, you know, our shortstop was Buddy Harrelson, who, bless his soul, he would cover every inch of ground he could cover. And some of it was in left field. And if there was one of these pop-ups between you, you knew Buddy was coming hard after it. And you know, as an outfielder, you 
you don't call off the infielder until you think you can catch it. Well, I was unsure. And, and some of those little pop-ups, you know, I'd, I'd get in between and here comes Buddy. And, you know, I rolled over him a couple of times, ran into him a couple of times before I got more comfortable picking up the ball. And it took a lot of work, but poor Buddy paid the price a couple of times. <laughs> Because he was so aggressive as a shortstop, it, 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 he did what he was supposed to do, but it complicated my end of the equation. Now, one of the things also um, that you did, you know, in, say in between seasons after 65, 66, um, in order to supplement your income, you also did a lot of local community events, which helped resonate you with the fan base. Um, oh, you could do in New York, you could do a little league dinner or Sunday morning breakfast. Um, you know, you could, you could do one of those, uh, uh, three, four or five times a week. Now you didn't make a whole lot of money. It was like 25, 50, 75 bucks. Um, but, but it was a living and you didn't, I never had to, I never had to have a job. And, and I did a lot of, uh, Sunday morning breakfast at the, uh, you know, Jewish community centers. And, and uh, it's where I um, learned, I, I, I really liked uh, lox and cream cheese on a bagel. <laughs> Back then I was a practicing Catholic and I, um, you know, I, I, I used to kid him and say, uh, um, I eat these on Friday because, you know, way back when, um, you know, you had a, you had a, a, a avoid meat on on Fridays if you were Catholic and so I could I could eat a lox and, and cream cheese on a bagel and I still love them uh, but um, you also got face to face with your fans and and um, in those surroundings I think I wasn't the only guy you know everybody who was there in the winter did the same thing if they could and and I think it, it made you so much more comfortable in front of people and, and 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 I've always you know the best advice it it you know I I've, I've just always felt comfortable with who I am I I didn't I don't you know your um, wonderful introduction notwithstanding um, I'm just a guy uh, from a little town in um, in in Maryland uh, Baltimore County who who got to live his dream and play major league baseball. And, and, you know, and, and that even took me into a world series, which is beyond your dreams, you know, actually, but, but when I related to people, I tried to relate to people, you know, it's, it's like you go out there and play baseball. You're going to make some good plays. You're going to make some really ugly plays and you're going to have to own them. And I tried to have, a good relationship with the media, with the with the writers, and when they came and asked me questions, for the most part, um, if you needed, you know, if if you needed to ask me about a play I booted or a good play I made, I I gave you an answer, and I always felt like I was treated more than fairly by the media, and and I think that's that's the key is is you gave them something to work with and they didn't go out of their way um uh, you know you you treated them like a human and they treated you like a human and i never had any problem in that regard but uh you knew your fans from that experience in the off season you knew who you were playing in front of and and um what a blessing uh, you, you know to feel that intimacy uh, almost you know it it was um it's pretty interesting that that the the world that we lived in and played in back then you didn't you didn't feel quite as remote I think as players in a very different era today um, feel you weren't making that kind of money um, you weren't afraid of the fans um, and and I think um, I think today that's not necessarily the case I think it's a little um, it's a little different era that we live in. But also, one of the things that happened was the Mets, you were with the Mets when they really weren't that competitive in terms of their overall record. Slowly but purely, 66, 67, uh, you get better. 
you, you could see some progress. You could start to get some confidence in some of the newer teammates, the Tom Seavers, the Jerry Kuzmans. In 1968, you get a new manager. You get a guy that really, really, really would make a big difference in the lives of all of the Mets that were around them, in Gil Hodges. What was yeah. it like to meet Gil for the first time, and how was your relationship with Gil? Um, it was pretty clear when Gil showed up, it was his way or the highway. And I was a kid for some reason. Um, I struggled a little bit with authority. Um, I, I didn't like to feel like somebody was leaning on me. And, and there were times when Gil gave me the feeling he was leaning on me. And I'd come out of 1967. I hit one, I hit 280, the best year I ever had batting average wise. And maybe I thought I knew a little bit more how to, how to conduct myself as a, as a major league player. And, and I didn't think I needed as much, you know, advice um, as I was maybe getting. Um, but Hodges and I had a fractious relationship and that's all on me. Um, all Gil ever wanted you to do was work as hard as you can, play as hard and as smart as you can and help the team win ball games. And, and, and you know, I could do that some of the time but I couldn't do it all of the time. And, and, and I just did things not particularly uh, bright that, um, that that rankled him and, 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 and ruined our relationship. Wasn't that I didn't respect him, but I bristled under authority. And, 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 and with Gil, um, you know, as a, a Marine during World War II, um, who I discovered later on um, was actually um, on the same island in the Pacific with the Marines as my father was on. Wow. As a, in a B-29 in uh, World War II. My dad was a gunner in a B-29. He landed on Tinian in the Marianas where the atomic bombs took off from. He landed there in late March, 1945. Uh, Gil had been there with the Marines and left Tinian um, in early March, uh, 1945. Um, you know, I was not yet one year old, and and um, and Gil was on his way to Okinawa, and and you know, and experienced, you know, that running series of, of awful battles in World War II. If you read any history, um, Okinawa was when we first, you know, went on to Japanese territory, and it was uh, it was horrendous fighting and and horrendous casualties. Uh, Gil was in an anti-aircraft battalion. Uh, he wasn't a line marine, but if you were on that island back then, you 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 had a a real good chance for something awful to happen to you. Um, and I remember the story when Tom Seaver, uh, who was in the Marine Reserves, um, which got him out of Vietnam, um, if you could get in a reserve unit. Um, Seaver asked Hodges one time, what was it like on Okinawa? And, uh, and Gil said to him, if you wanted to know what it was like, you needed to be there. And that was it. Um, it was that bad. And, and so it was, I, I, I learned this about Hodges um, after he had passed away. Um, and, and um, actually after my dad had passed away. So later on, you become a, a better team in 1968, um, but 1969 changed everything. It changed everything, not only for the Mets, but it also changed things for Ron Swoboda. You guys became, you know, this storied team that did something that was so inexplicable that it's got a special place in cultural history in America. Um, what was 19, what was different about 1969? What was it, not only from a Ron Swoboda standpoint, but from the rest of the team that the second half of the year, you were almost unbeatable and you, you forged your way into a World Series? 
Well, if you looked at, you go back and when I was writing my memoir um, uh, of that 1969 season um, called Here's the Catch, um, if you looked at the way that team came out of spring training and uh, we had, we, we, we had no reason to think we were going to be, you know, lurching into history. We didn't have any reason to feel like destiny's darling. We thought we could be a little bit better in, than in 1968. We felt like we could take some steps forward. Um, but if you look at the way Hodges handled that team early on, look at the lineups, go into you know, uh, baseball reference online and look at the lineups and the, and the, and the, uh, uh, the play-by-play sheets and how the games went and who got to play and look at the lineups and, and, and the box scores and stuff, which you can do. In which I did when I wrote my memoir to refresh my memory, Gill was casting about pretty, pretty widely looking for the right formula for that team, looking for who could play because people don't remember. There were heavy conversations in the spring of 1969 between the Mets and the Braves. The Braves were looking for pitching. And they wanted to get into our young arms as deeply as they could. They had Joe Torrey out there and they were offering Joe Torrey for, you know, two or three good young arms if they could get them from the Mets. The conversations broke down because the Mets were not going to give up on uh, uh, any of these young arms uh, if they if, if they, they didn't have to. And, and Joe Torrey ended up being traded to, to the uh, Cardinals straight up for Orlando Cepeda, first baseman for first baseman. The Braves did not get the pitching they were after. And of course, we faced them uh, in, in the first National League playoffs and our left-handed platoon out hit the Braves, out produced the Braves lineup with Henry Aaron, Orlando Cepeda, Rico Cardi. They had a, a bunch of pretty good thumpers in that lineup and we out hit them against their pitching staff. And some of the reason might've been because they didn't get those young arms that they were after from the Mets. And I don't know if that was what kept the Mets from making the trade, but it is one of the forgotten things I think about our progress as that year went on. But anyway, Hodges was looking for everything, it seemed like. And if you look at his lineup, he's all over the place. Rod Gasper's in there playing in the outfield. I'm doing nothing. Early in the year, I was useless. The first couple of months of the season, I was just in the weeds, in a slump, and I just couldn't get out of it. I couldn't make anything happen as hard as I tried, and maybe I was trying too hard, but Amos Otis was on that team, and Hodges had him in the outfield, and he also tried Amos at third base. He wanted Amos to convert as a third baseman, and Amos was not interested in that. Of course, he ended up getting traded in the offseason to Kansas City for Joe Foy, a third baseman, and, and Foy was in trouble with drugs and, um, and his life and career spiraled downward um, as a Met, um, the late Joe Foy, I might add. And uh, Amos Otis went on to an all-star career in the outfield for Kansas City. Um, so we were, we were, you know, Hodges was looking for something, you know, and, 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 and he was all over the place with his lineup until sometime in late May and early June, we go on an 11 game win streak. It started in Shea Stadium against the California teams and went on the coast against those same California teams. Uh, San Francisco and uh, LA and, and San Diego was brand new as an expansion team. And uh, so we win 11 straight games. And now instead of being six and a half, seven games, eight games out of the off the lead, all of a sudden we're in the hunt. And, and, and the end of June was the trading deadline back in 1969. And that's when 
the Mets made the deal with uh, Montreal for Don Clendenin, a power hitting first baseman. Um, Montreal and Gene Mock wanted to try to trade him to the Astros for Rusty Staub, amongst others, and Clendenin was not wanting to go. Um, he didn't want to be there and he wasn't going to be there. He had a job in the offseason working for Scripto while he was studying law. And, and, and so he, he balked at the trade and, and the commissioner, the brand new commissioner of baseball, Bowie Kuhn said to him, keep in shape, keep playing. We'll find a deal for you. Well, the deal they found was with the New York Mets and it was like five for one. Um, the only, you know, the significant player from us to them was a young pitcher, uh, uh, Rogers, uh, I believe. And, and, um, uh, um, and, 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 uh, I might have that name wrong because it's eluding me right now, but, but he was a guy that pitched for Montreal and won a few games and substantiated the trade all by himself. But, um, you can look it up, but, um, we had all of a sudden now we had a new piece in the puzzle, uh, a right-handed first baseman with pop Hodges got into a strict platoon at certain positions. It was me and Art Shamsky in right field. It was Ed Cranepool and Don Clendenin at first base. Um, Ed Charles and, and um, Wayne Garrett were platooning at third. And Al Weiss was platooning with Ken Boswell at second. And off we went. It All of a sudden, he got a good combination. Um, I finally got a chance to play when Cleon Jones was hurt for a little bit. It, it was an interesting move because that was the day against the Astros when Hodges did a long walk out the left field after it appeared that Cleon hadn't really hustled after a ball, but Cleon was having trouble with his leg that he had hurt. And, and, um, and Hodges didn't accept that. If you were hurt, you couldn't, if you couldn't play all out, if you couldn't play 100%, he took Cleon off the field. He put me in there. This was in August sometime, and uh, I got to play, and, and I started hitting a little bit. I started hitting enough that when Cleon came back, I'm in the platoon in right field, and I play down the stretch and contribute a little something in the last couple of months of the season. Um, and, and, you know, our pitching – from from the all-star break on with Tom Seaver and Jerry Kuzman was ridiculous. If you look at what Seaver and Kuzman did and how you know unbeatable they were, it it was amazing. Of course, you had Gary Gentry and um Tug McGraw out of the bullpen and um Jim McAndrew, um, you know, the, the young arms, and then uh, Ron Taylor was out of the pen, Dr. Ron Taylor, and um and, and, and uh, Don Cardwell, a veteran who did some starting for us, we could throw some arms at you. And we were getting enough runs now to make it hold up. And we won trailing the Cubs by about six games or so going into late August. Um, we were trailing by six games. They're playing us, you know, always tough. The series with the Cubs was almost a toss-up that season, but suddenly for them at the end of August, they ran out of gas and uh, they augered in and, and we, were, we were hitting high gear. We were hitting turbo and, and winning three out of four games the last couple of months of the season. We blew by them and, and never looked back. If, if, if there's a, you know, if, if, you know, none of us had ever played baseball with that degree of success uh, before, and I certainly didn't after. Um, it was incredible, you know, it was, it was wondrous. The game came to us all the time. We won every way you could win, but most of it was Kuzman and Seaver going out there back to back and, and, and being nearly unbeatable. So you guys go on, as you said, you beat the Atlanta Braves in the first NLCS. You get to the World Series. You're pay, playing against your beloved, your hometown, Baltimore Orioles. In, yep. in game four, you make the catch of a lifetime. And 
we don't have to reiterate the whole catch. It is something people have played back in their minds. It is one of the greatest, if not the greatest catch in Major League Baseball history. And well, it was pretty good. Um, you know, we, we were we were up on the Orioles uh, two games to one. Uh, game game four was at Shea, and we were uh, leading one nothing. Seavers on the mound. You know, he had lost his first um, start in the, in the World Series and was in a little bit of trouble in this game in the uh, top of the ninth inning. Uh, gave up a couple of singles to um, uh, uh, Frank Robinson and followed by Boog Powell. It was first and third and, um, and one out, I think. And... Um, Hodges went out to talk to Tom Seaver at that point in time because Brooks Robinson was coming up. And, and uh, when I was writing my memoir, I called Tom Seaver and I asked him, I said, what'd you guys talk about? And you know that Tom uh, late in his life uh, suffered uh, from a form of dementia. And um, uh, we've come to learn it was diagnosed as Lewy body dementia there were certain things um, and they think it was exacerbated by Lyme disease, but there were certain memories from his brilliant Hall of Fame career that were gone. He lost them. Um, dementia being that, you know, awful thief that can go in there and steal these golden moments from you and they're gone forever. And Tom said to me, Ron, I don't, I don't have any memory of that. And, and when he said that to me, I just felt my whole stomach sink because those memories to me are so precious. And the fact that, you know, I've been able to hang on to them and, 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 um, and reinforce them over the years, that thought just rocked me to my core. And, and I, I later found out that Hodges went out there and said, if he hits the ball back to you, you check that runner at third because that was the go ahead run. Don't worry about the double play. Um, you check that runner. I don't want that runner to score. Well, that was that was the meeting. Um, Seaver throws a look like a sinking fastball to Brooks Robinson, and he hits a line drive to right field. And I got a great jump on it. Now, you know, there's a lot of discussion about whether I could have taken a safer angle. Um, I can't in my mind envision a safer angle. I broke, I had worked very hard with Eddie, Eddie Yost, our third base coach on line drives and things of that sort and working on my jump and whatnot. I really worked at it because I had made some pretty egregious mistakes as an outfielder. And I felt like I had made myself a way better outfielder than conventional wisdom, which you know, I define as maybe conventional, but not always wisdom. But um, I got a great jump on it and I only ran about three or four strides and, 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 and realized I had to go to my back end, full layout. And that's what I did. And the thing hit me right in the web. And, you know, um, I knew when it hit my web, it wasn't going anywhere. Now, what would have happened if I don't get to it? Or if it, you know, goes untouched by me, I, I, I can't attest to that. A lot of things could have happened. I could have knocked it down. I could have ricocheted it somewhere. It isn't a given that Boog Powell scores from first base, but it was obvious Frank Robinson, who was a great player, Hall of Famer, who knew how to run the bases, he tagged up and made sure he didn't move until the ball hit me in the glove. So he scores and, and what it becomes is one of the more um, outstanding sacrifice flies you're ever gonna see, as well as one of the better catches you're gonna see. So it was, uh, it was pretty remarkable in every way. We end up tied and two innings later, we win the ball game. And that's a pivotal moment because if the Orioles come back and tie the series up, you don't want to open the door for that crowd because you give them any sort of oxygen, any sort of motivation, and it could be over in a hurry. But what happened was we win that game, go up three to one, 
and we win it in five uh, the next day. Um, and, you know, I'm an average ball player who in that moment, um, you know, and, and the beautiful thing about short series, you know, any major league ball player can rise to all kinds of occasions and all kinds of heights in a short series. The great players are measured by a full season, you know, by bigger numbers. And, and I had worked so hard at that aspect of my game. The fact that it resulted in that backhanded catch in that situation is something I'll always be proud of. And, 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 and you said it, it changed my life in so many ways because now you, you know, without trying, you're associated with an event at a point in time that a, a whole lot of people um, hold, hold closely. Um, and, and that's a privilege, still is, always will be. One of the things, uh, before I let you go, let's talk a little bit, your baseball career ends, you become a broadcaster. Um, you become right. a guy who works in three major markets on the air. What was that like for Ron to go to the ballpark, the ball player, to become a sportscaster? You know, it was a huge opportunity for me. And I think the, um, the fact that you write your own copy um, and you have to come up with a broadcast every day. I always felt like I was, um, I, I was scuffling in that career. It's only a only a few years late in my career. I, I did it for 20 years. But here in New Orleans, where I live, it, it, it was only late on that I felt like I had a handle on this. I always felt like I was playing catch up, that I was not smart enough um, uh, uh, to really be doing this for a living, but um, I was able to somehow just scuffle. Um, and I think, you know, being an average ball player, if you can't learn how to scuffle, uh, you're not going to be around very long anyway. So uh, I was kind of good at that. And I, uh, you know, um, and, and I, uh, I, I think it helped me look at literature differently and writing differently. And, uh, and I've always loved reading and I've always liked, uh, I've always liked, I've always had a, I think a pretty, a pretty vigorous curiosity of things so it was fun being kind of a reporter and uh, and I've, I've sort of maintained that curiosity as I've gotten older but um it really um it, it really was for me you know I did I look don't ever kid yourself I told someone one time the best broadcast I ever had wasn't as much fun as batting practice when I was a player and I really meant it um you didn't get quite the same kick out of it. Um, it, it not the same sense of uh, of accomplishment as you did as a professional athlete. But it was a wonderful career, um, and and I was very fortunate. You used the term lucky. I was lucky to get the opportunity, and I did it for twenty years. Well, what you know, you've done so many things that have resonated with people, which is help cement your place in, you know, popular culture here in New York. I mean, the fantasy camps, you still do, still do to this very, very day. I mean, everybody who comes out of those camps, one of the things they always resonate and they always talk about is how much fun they had with Ron Swoboda. Ron Swoboda. Well, I, can still, I can still go to games at City Field and sit in the stands, you know, and enjoy the heck out of, hanging out with a baseball fan and city field is a great place to watch a game. And if, if we can bring some sanity into those negotiations um, for a new collective bargaining agreement, um, I suspect we'll have baseball at some point in time. I'd like it sooner rather than later. Uh, and with that kind of money on the table, there has to be a solution, but I want to, I want to be back at city field not separated from the fans, but sitting there with, with some, you know, with some people who love the game and love to talk about the game. And, and um, you know, at my age, that's a treat, you know, that's a treat to hang out with them because it, you know, it's just cool. You know, I'm, 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 I'm not a celebrity of that sort. I never, I never uh, 
aspired to that. I always liked the idea that, you know, that, you know, that I was an everyman. Well, and that part of you will always sit with the fans, sit better than anybody could ever imagine. Ron Zamoda, thank you so much for being on Overtime. Thank you for sharing your life, your journey with us. And we look forward to seeing you at City Field. And we look forward to hearing more Ron Swoboda stories in the years to come. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And uh, thank you for having me, Lynn.